You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, if you'll take your Bibles and turn once again to Revelation, and then we're going to be in several different places today, but we'll begin in Revelation. Today's a little bit different in that we're not going to be specifically addressing the text in Revelation, so I've titled it uh, Theo Talk for Theology Talk for short, mainly not because I'm looking to be like cool with a new name. Um, I want to designate these differently in the notes that I give you on Google Drive so that you can quick reference them hopefully later down the road as being different than a sermon on Revelation. So these are going to be times where we step away from the book of Revelation and we specifically talk kind of in a systematic theology way about a topic pertinent to Revelation And so I hope to do one of these down the road in regards to the Antichrist, in regards to the millennial reign, basically so that you can quick reference some of this stuff as you maybe uh, forget and need to remind yourself about some of these things. Because if you tried to go back and find all the discussion on the rapture in our study on Thessalonians, you're going to spend some time like I did yesterday having to go through each one because the sermons aren't titled that way. Um... They're titled based on the passage that we're looking at, and so it's not easy to go back and reference. Here's where we talked about some of these key points. So my desire is to title it differently so that if you want to reference back to these notes down the road, you can quick reference them and say, hey, I want to remember some of the things we talked about with the rapture, and you can go back specifically to this sermon. So that's the reason for the cute title, and if somebody has a better title for it, feel free to let me know, because at 6 in the morning, it was not a real creative time for me. So um, Revelation chapter 1, we read this last week. Um, We've been studying through verse 8 up to this point. And and I want to read again uh, the passage that we've already read this morning just to set the tone. Um, It says in uh, verse 7, Behold, he, talking about Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So as John's writing about this revelation that comes from Jesus through an angel to him, he draws our attention very quickly to the revelation of Jesus that the world will see at some point in the future. And so I told you this morning that um, we need to have some time to discern what what coming are we talking about here? Are we talking about the rapture? Are we talking about the second coming? Do we believe in a rapture? Do we only believe in a second coming? All right, so our summary sentence for today. We have a strong need to understand as much as we can about the return of Jesus so that we can faithfully receive the encouragement meant for us as believers and so we can accurately warn unbelievers of their coming judgment. We have a strong need to understand as much as we can about the return of Jesus so that we can faithfully receive the encouragement meant for us as believers and so we can accurately warn unbelievers of their coming judgment. For our kids, knowing more about Jesus, and I need you to add the word return there because I left it out of our notes. Knowing more about Jesus's return helps us stay encouraged. More often than not, when we see in Scripture uh, discussions about Jesus coming back, it's tied to encouragement for believers. There's constant encouragement that believers are supposed to find about Jesus coming back. And then uh, a lot of the times, there's this uh, flip side of it that unbelievers are supposed to see a warning for them attached to that passage. That in Jesus coming back, there's judgment that will come upon those who are lost. And so while not in every case is there a warning, um, I believe in every case when it talks about Jesus coming back, there's some type of hope or encouragement attached to it for the believer. So it would make sense then, the more we understand about the return of Jesus, the more encouraged we're going to be. And it's also going to give us uh, more accurate information about the coming judgment for an unbeliever so that we can rightfully and faithfully warn them as well. Um, so there's a need for us to understand this. This isn't just simply for us to puff up our heads with knowledge and beat our chest that we understand Scripture and maybe others don't. Um, we're not studying this just to increase our knowledge. We're studying this, and, and I want you to understand the things that we talk about today because I believe it'll give you more grounds for encouragement 
as well as more grounds to warn others. All right? Return passages, uh, I just put it in my notes, they reveal Jesus coming in all of his glory to rescue the saints and judge the lost. That's what they all kind of have this common theme, that the coming of Jesus is a revelation of Jesus and who he is for everyone to see. Because right now, there are many who don't see Jesus for who he is, right? They don't see Jesus as, um, as a real being. They don't see Jesus as the coming king. They don't submit to Jesus' authority. What we find in the return passage is there's coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So for us as believers, there's this, there's this encouragement not to despair, when hard times are facing us, we don't despair because Jesus is coming back to make all things right. And we certainly don't wander from the faith. That to wander from the faith would then put us under that judgment that comes when Jesus returns towards the lost. All right? Why, why is this important? Why is this rapture decision so important for us? It begins by us seeing that this shapes our understanding of Revelation. Now, I told you before, I always get fearful about teaching on end-time stuff um, because I, I desire any time I teach, especially in this setting, that I teach in such a way that I'm not going to have to backtrack years later, right? Like, I don't ever want to have to come to you and say, hey, I used to believe this about the Bible, but now that I've studied it more, I don't believe this anymore, and I need to change what I've taught you previously, um, a lot of the times I don't have to worry about that. A lot of the times it's clear passages of Scripture. I've been taught, I've studied, I've come to an understanding, and I don't see that ever shifting. But when it comes to eschatology and end-time stuff, there's always this fear that, am I going to have to change my opinion on this down the road due to more study? Um, and I want to tell you that in 2010 was my first real-time teaching this at a youth retreat, and then again in 2012, as we were going through First and Second Thessalonians, um, there was a lot of end-time discussion there too. So we're seven years after 2010's youth retreat. We're four to five years after our time in First and Second Thessalonians. And I can tell you that I'm only more confident today in what I've taught you than anything. Um, there's been no shift. There's been no reclarification. There's no backtracking that I feel is necessary. If anything, I'm far more confident in the things that we've been learning together about the end times. And so as I read, as I study, uh, the Holy Spirit continues to affirm to me um, the understanding that, that I see from Scripture. And so sharing with you today, I'm far more confident maybe than I ever have been in talking about some of these topics. But it's important for us to see that this shapes our understanding of Revelation. So again, you may not really be interested in some of the higher level theology stuff and, and, and whatnot, but this is important because this shapes the way we understand the rest of the book of Revelation. Because if there is a rapture, then the bulk of Revelation we're not here for, which means a lot of the discussion, a lot of the events, a lot of the teachings, a lot of the encouragement, it's meant for a different group of people. If the rapture occurs the way that the rapture view states, then Jesus comes back and takes his church away, and then a lot of the things in Revelation start to happen. So for us to approach Revelation, if we believe in a rapture, then we have to admit that the bulk of this book is hopefully picked up by somebody during that time and read and understood and that those people respond to it. That it, that it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with us. Now, it gives us a glimpse into the future. We get to see how things would have happened had we been here, but the bulk of Revelation would really have no meaning for us being that we would not be a part of it, okay? So that's why it's really important for us to wrestle with this. Are the things that we're going to talk about in this book relevant to us or specifically more relevant to those who are there during those events? Um, remember, the book of Revelation is supposed to contain blessing it's supposed to in, uh, contain encouragement. And so for us to gain a proper blessing and a proper encouragement from this book, we need to know how to read it. Um, and so it's my belief that we read it uh, with the understanding that we can be here for, for, for the events of Revelation. Um, and we'll unpack that idea of why I don't believe in a rapture as we get into this more. Um, but there's this shaping of the understanding of the book of Revelation. For our kids, it helps us read Revelation. Okay, and again, don't hesitate to stop me today if there's things that are confusion, confusing. Confusing. Number two, 
Making a decision about the rapture helps develop our sense of urgency. It helps develop our sense of urgency. If there's a rapture, then it creates the possibility of a second chance for someone to repent after Jesus comes back again. For our kids, it helps us to tell others about judgment coming. So let's just, let's just pause here for a second and think about it. How would your life be different, or how should your life be different if there is a rapture versus there not being a rapture? Does anybody have any thoughts on how your life would be different Let's say I did stand up here today and say, hey, guys, I've been wrong, um, and in my studies, I have shifted my thought, and I really do believe that there is a rapture, that Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to take us out of here, and then there will be seven years of tribulation and potentially a thousand years of Jesus reigning on this earth. Would that change your life at all? All right, it would change your preparation for the future in what way? Okay, so your views on the things of this world would change. So, okay. Other thoughts. How would your life be different if I said there is a rapture? Okay, so if there was a rapture, then we could potentially warn people that when we're not here, there's proof that Jesus does exist. Let me, let me tell you how, how this would affect me uh, in a real big way. Um, we've at various times prayed for different loved ones in our families that we know aren't believers, right? Like you've shared on Sunday mornings, you've shared in C group times that, hey, these are people that I'm close to, that I love. They're not believers. I want to pray for their salvation. If, if I was convinced that we were leaving and that there would be extended time for repentance, I would have, or I would be working on some type of document some type of video, something that would give clarification about what is happening, what is going to happen. I would give direction and answers to things that would hopefully lead my unbelieving friends and family members to Christ. Because here's the thing, if everybody disappears, I would imagine that those people are going to come looking for us and are going to be rummaging through our house trying to figure out what is going on and what has happened. And what I'd like to have on my mantle is, if I'm not here, please read. And there'd be a full-on description of the gospel, right? Like, to me, that would radically change my preparation. If I believed that lost people, friends and family members, would have a chance, would have a chance to repent after Jesus came back, it would radically change my preparation. But I don't believe that. I believe when Jesus comes back, it's over. Now, that doesn't have the type of transformation in my, in my life like it should because I should then be warning people like crazy that when Jesus comes back, there is no second chance. A lot of times we treat it like there is going to be a second chance. There's maybe not that urgency that we should feel that if, if somebody doesn't repent before Jesus comes back, they're not going to have the opportunity to repent. But I can tell you it would shift my, my understanding of how to communicate coming judgment and would certainly uh, cause me to create some, uh, some second chance opportunities for people close in my life. So it does develop our sense of urgency based on how we answer and respond to this question. And number three, it guides our approach to discipleship. It guides our approach to discipleship. What do you mean by that? Well, You'll remember in First and Second Thessalonians, we said that, that Paul shows up and, and plants a church, new believers, and that he stayed about six months, and we said that he thoroughly explained the end times to them. That there was discussions about the Antichrist, there was discussions about the second coming, there was discussions about the resurrection, that he, that he tackled it early and often with new believers. For those of you that have spent time with new believers, somebody that hasn't grown up in church, somebody that comes to faith in Christ, you know that some of the initial questions they're asking has to do with the end times, right? Like that, that's, a, that's a point of curiosity for a lot of people, especially for new believers. Now, what does it look like if a new believer is asking us questions about the end times, something that's very important to them, something that will naturally um, shape their urgency about telling others about Jesus if they're asking us questions and we're like, I don't know, I don't know, like, I don't know, 
Like it's just, it's really confusing. I haven't thought about it much or I haven't studied it like I need to. Like we need to be the answers to those questions. When, when a new believer is craving for information about what does this mean for the future? What does this mean for my family members? That we can help guide them into the things that are clear in scripture. Not that we can, we can satisfy all of their curiosity because that's not what the book of Revelation is for but we ought to be able to answer some real clear, basic questions that are going to pop up. Some of the same questions that the Thessalonians had. Hey, what happens to the believers that have died already? Right? What happens when I start seeing tribulation around me? We should be able to guide in our discipleship. Paul had that approach. Paul had that clear approach that he wanted to tackle uh, end-time theology in his initial discipleship with new believers. All right, so this is why it's important that I'm not just trying to give you knowledge today, that I want you to know this is how we're going to read the book of Revelation because we have to decide something. Either the, Revelation, either the book of Revelation is for us or for people in the future. I believe it's for us, okay? Right, yeah, definitely. Yeah, with a belief in the rapture, there's not that sense of urgency even to prepare for some of the things that we're talking about having to go through. The, the increased temptation, the increased uh, tribulation, the increased persecution, that necessitates that we're even grounded more in our faith than if we're going to get out of here before, before it gets bad kind of thing. Um, so absolutely. In fact, if you read um, a couple of passages I skipped over because I have a ton of verses here that that I would like to read that I know we, we aren't going to have time to read through. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Second Peter chapter 3, it says, um, verse 1, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of, the, both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I don't know how you could read that passage and think that believers... The church isn't here for that, right? Like for the rapture to be true, it means that we're, we're caught up and away from this, that this, that this isn't part of, part of our life, that we go well before this happens. Um, and so as I read that, I see an urgency both for unbelievers to repent, but for believers to stay focused on the fact that Jesus is coming back, even though there's a bunch of people saying that he's not. We'll get back into that passage more um, later on. Points of agreement, and this is, again, always important for me because you can disagree with me and you can believe in a rapture and worship here um, and serve here and be a vital member of our church and disagree with me on this, okay? Because we're going to agree on the fact that Jesus is coming back in a physical form and it'll be visible to everyone. We can also agree that when Jesus comes back, at some point there will be a resurrection of believers to eternal reward and unbelievers to eternal punishment, that death will be defeated, that all of God's plans will be accomplished as he intended. So we can agree on those things, but again, I don't want to just say, hey, I know the basics, whatever else happens, happens. I want to get the, bless the full blessing from Revelation, right? Like I want to receive the maximum amount of encouragement. I, be on to, I, don't, I want to be able to pass on the maximum amount of truth that I can to somebody else. I want to know what the Bible teaches about Jesus coming back to the fullest. 
as much as I can so that I can teach others, okay? I want to summarize real quick the two different positions that we're talking about, and then I'm going to give you arguments for the rapture and then why I don't believe in the rapture, all right? Um, and this is, this is a long summary of the rapture position. It's available on the, online on our Google Drive for you to reference later, but I'm just going to read through this real quick, okay? Here's what the rapture position says. The church will endure until the time of the rapture when Christ will suddenly and unexpectedly return to call Christians to himself. Okay, so we're in the church age. The church will continue to happen, and at some point Jesus will come back unexpectedly and take the church with him. Christ will return to heaven with the believers, the church, sparing them from the coming tribulation that is meant to judge and save Israel. Okay, so key point there is that the tribulation time of seven years is a judgment-saving time for Israel, according to this view. At the end of the great tribulation, Christ will return again, what we call the second coming, what we see in Second Peter, with believers to establish a 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Believers on earth at that time, so people that made it through the tribulation, will enter into this thousand-year reign and will worship Jesus in a rebuilt temple by offering animal sacrifices. They will have normal bodies and will die during that time. At the end of the thousand-year reign, remaining dead believers and all unbelievers will be resurrected. Okay? I just want you to understand what this view really teaches. This view teaches that we leave, we live with Jesus in heaven for seven years, then we come back with Jesus. During those seven years, a bunch of Jewish people get saved. So Jesus comes back and basically kills all the unbelievers. Okay? Then the believers, the Jewish people, they enter into a thousand-year reign. They don't get new bodies. They don't get transformed like 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about. That happens at the rapture. So church gets new bodies. Uh, believers that were dead get raised with new bodies, and then we come back. And then the people that got saved in the tribulation, they just go into the millennial reign with these bodies. And they're going to die. And they're going to get married, and they're going to have kids, and they're going to rebuild the temple, and they're going to offer sacrifices which is hard for me to reconcile when we know that Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice, why we would need to revert back to animal sacrifices. But for a thousand years, animal sacrifices are being offered as a sign of worship to Jesus. People are dying. And it's not until the end of that thousand year reign that unbelievers are resurrected and judged. Okay, that's the rapture view. The non-rapture position or for the kids, what is the rapture? The belief that Jesus comes back for the church many years before the world ends. I put that in your notes just so you can know what we're talking about. The no rapture position is far more simple. Jesus is coming back to end this age and usher in the eternal state by raising to life those believers that are dead, transforming those believers that are alive, and judging both dead and un alive unbelievers at the same time. So, the non-rapture non position that I hold to is that when Jesus comes back, pretty much everything's happening at the same time. Unbelievers are going to get raised and judged along with those that are alive at that time. Believers that have died are going to be raised first, going to be caught up in the clouds with Jesus. Believers are going to be raised uh, with new bodies as well. It's just going to be a, uh, an instantaneous transformation. And then the end will be, and we will be ushered into eternity. Okay, so that's kind of a summary of those two positions. Right, so if you don't believe in the rapture, you can still believe differently about the millennium than what I believe. So there's some people uh, that would believe, Jordan's asking about um, how the millennium fits into these two summaries. The rapture position believes that there's a thousand-year reign after the second coming of Jesus, but an also a rapture happening. Those that believe in a thousand-year reign that don't believe in a rapture, they just believe that Jesus comes back, and then he starts a thousand-year reign, People like me that believe in the amillennial position believe that we're in the millennial reign right now, that Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. There is no thousand-year period that we're waiting on. I will say that if I'm going to believe in a real thousand-year reign, I'm more prone to believe in the rapture than the non-rapture view. Because somebody like John Piper who believes that there is no rapture, but that Jesus comes back and establishes a thousand-year reign— have a hard time explaining who's alive during the thousand-year reign because 
he says that when Jesus comes back, he's only coming back one time, which means First Thessalonians has to happen, right? That believers are raised to life. Anybody that's a believer gets a new body and that he comes and judges unbelievers, which means he kind of wipes them out. And then we're supposed to have a group of people that have regular bodies that go into the millennial reign and there's really nobody left. And I haven't found an answer as to who actually lives in that. So we'll get more into that when we talk about the millennial reign. Um, Today we're just really hitting more on rapture, no rapture, but good question. All right, um, arguments for the rapture. Two passages that are really important for Understanding the rapture, and I want to read both of those to you real quick. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. These are the two main passages regarding the rapture. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Meaning, we're not going to all die, but we all will get new bodies. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Meaning, dead believers are going to come back to life and get new bodies that will never die again. And we too shall be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, that's one passage on Jesus coming back that some people say is that pre-tribulation um, rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, those are the two main passages regarding the rapture. Arguments for the rapture. These are the arguments that people that support the rapture show. Number one, that the rapture passages and the second coming passages are different, okay? They believe that these two passages specifically are different than a lot of the other passages about Jesus coming back. Here's some of the differences they would highlight. First of all, there's no warnings prior to the rapture passages. There's no warnings about being prepared for it. There's no warnings about um, repenting for it, that it's just kind of thrown in there, okay? No warnings prior to the rapture passages here. Secondly, there's no translation of or transformation of living believers in the second coming passages. So they're going to say, this is really the only two times that you see believers being transformed and given new bodies. That the other times when it talks about Jesus coming back, that's already happened, and so it's not in the text. Okay? They also say there's no judgment of unbelievers in these two passages that makes them different. The unbelievers aren't judged at the rapture. When we leave, life just kind of continues into the tribulation. Okay? Um, so those are kind of their supporting statements for saying, it's clear these two passages right here are different than what we read about in Second Peter. They're different about what we read about in Revelation. They're different than these other passages. Okay? My response to that argument is that the passages here are viewed from different perspectives and purposes meaning that the words are related to Christ, or, or meaning that basically sometimes we're, we're heavy on the encouragement needed for a believer. Sometimes we're heavy on the warning that is being posed to the unbeliever. So based on the purpose of the author writing, sometimes he's going to write about Jesus coming back and it's going to be heavy about the encouragement for the believer. Other times it's going to be heavy on the judgment coming to the unbeliever. There's a couple of different words used for Jesus coming back. 
revelation, appearance, coming. And those words in the Greek, they're all used interchangeably in all of these passages about Jesus' return. You'd kind of expect there to be some clarity that's, that when it's talking about this rapture return, that there would be different wordage for it, but all the same words are used, okay? Um, rapture people are also going to say that when you talk about the second coming passages, no, no passage talks about us being caught up in the air except for these two rapture passages. They would also say that there's no return to heaven in the second coming passages, only here where it talks about us being caught up together with Jesus forever, the implication being that we go to heaven, all right? There's a lot of stuff right there. The response that I have towards that, first of all, when we talk about no meeting in the air, the word for meet, so basically the argument is, why would we be caught up with, the, with Jesus in the air if we're just going to come back to earth with him? Why would we not go to heaven for seven years? Basically, the language is, is that if we're going to get caught up into the air with, with Jesus, that we should be leaving and going back to heaven with him, okay? But the word that's used there, and I've shared this with you before, but I wanted to come back to it. The word that's used there really carries a different meaning. Um, in Acts chapter 28, verse 15, This is talking about Paul going to Rome. Um, and, and Paul's trying to get to Rome, verse 14. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. Verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apias and three taverns to meet us. There's the word meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Okay, so the idea here is that Paul's coming to Rome. As he's approaching Rome, there's a group of people that go out and meet him outside the city and then come into the city with him. That same word is used in Matthew 25, talking about the bridegroom, people going out to meet the bridegroom and then coming right back into the wedding feast. Okay, here's the picture. You invite somebody to church, okay, they're running late to church, okay, so you're already here, you're already inside, you're waiting, things are about to get started, they text you and say, hey, I'm pulling in, okay, most of us are going to go outside, we're going to meet them, and then we're going to walk in with them, why, because if we just sit down here on the front row and we know our friends are about to walk in, we know that a lot of people are going to start trying to greet them and try to figure out who are you, how did you know about our church, And so it's easier if we just go out and kind of usher in their presence so that everybody can meet them with us, right? So we would go out and meet them in the parking lot and walk in. That's where I see the purpose in us going into the heavens to meet Jesus, to then just come simply back to the earth. That this is God's way of separating believers from unbelievers, giving us those glorified bodies so that we can come into glory with Jesus as he returns to the earth, not for us to go back to heaven. So the first argument that they have is that the rapture passages and the second coming passages are different. I say, yes, they are different, but they're different because different perspectives and purposes are being emphasized. All right, number two, the rapture allows for a true imminent return of Jesus. All right, Um, they're going to say that there are signs that must be completed before the second coming. Matthew 24 um, is one passage that uh, relays that, 2 Thessalonians 2. These are things that talk about like earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and antichrist coming and false teachers and prophets. A lot of different things that Jesus says will happen before he comes back. So rapture people say, well, there's too much in scripture that says Jesus could come back at any time if there's a bunch of signs that have to happen. And so therefore, the rapture allows there to be kind of an urgency that Jesus could come back at any time and us not having to figure out if these signs have been completed or not. I've shared with you before, though, the signs that we're talking about are signs that have been going on since the beginning of time, right? Earthquakes and wars and false teachers, some of these key components, right? One of them is that the gospel has to go forth to all nations, right? But we, could, we, could, um, we can see from passages in Scripture that the gospel has gone forth all around the world, 
that, that the gospel has been spread. Now, there are still people hearing about Jesus for the very first time, but it's very possible that the signs that are being talked about have been fulfilled in such a way where Jesus really could come at any time, all right? Um, number three, the rapture creates the greatest hope if we can escape a coming tribulation. They argue that, um, that we won't be here for a tribulation. Now, when I was growing up, I was led to believe that Revelation, that there was a chapter in Revelation that basically described the church escaping the tribulation. But, but that chapter's not in Revelation. The, the, the supporting passages for us not being here for a great time of tribulation is 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. They would say we're not destined for wrath. The tribulation is a time of wrath. Therefore, we're not here for it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 is really the only other passage used to describe the fact that the church would not be here. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one sees your crown. No one may seize your crown. Um, so these are the two passages that they say, hey, church isn't here for a tribulation, so we have to be raptured out of here. Um, but that's it. My response is there's no real explicit teaching found in the New Testament about the church escaping greater tribulation. Revelation 3 is written to a specific church. Um, it's written to a specific church about them specifically being spared um, from a specific time of trial. But even the idea of keeping them in that hour of trial is more of a preservation versus them being completely removed from it. You'll remember um, Jesus prayed for his disciples, not that they would be taken out of the world, but that they would be kept pure in the world, right? That there would be a hedge of protection placed around them while in the midst of difficult times, all right? Uh, Number four, the rapture accounts for the church not being mentioned in Revelation 4 through 19. So people that believe in the rapture believe that there's really no mention of the church in most of Revelation. Therefore, they conclude that the church must not be here. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, the passage talks about um, the Antichrist not coming because of the restrainer keeping him. And so the belief is that the Holy Spirit will not be here either, which then allows for the events of Revelation to unfold. Problem with that is that there's a lot of people that get saved during the tribulation. I mean, a whole a lot of people. And according to Titus 3, 4 through 6, the Holy Spirit's a really important component in people getting saved. Um, therefore, the Holy Spirit has to be here for people to get saved. Okay? Um, and number five, the rapture helps explain who will populate the millennial reign, living saints at the end of the tribulation. That goes back to what Jordan had asked earlier. Um, if you believe in a literal thousand years where Jesus reigns on this earth, then the rapture does make the most sense of that view. But as I shared with you, um, I don't believe in a little, literal thousand-year reign. I believe we're in that right now. All right, it's about to get real easier. Or real, is that even like a way to say it? It's about to get real easy. Easier than it has been right now. Turning point in this teaching. Right now, things are about to get a whole lot more simplified. Okay. There's a lot of complicated things that we just talked about here, like meanings of words, what does it mean to meet him in the air, blah, 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 okay? That's meant to help you understand the issue at hand, but the absolute main reason why I do not believe in a rapture, and there's varying views about what we've talked about today, every single person who believes in the rapture and really knows why they believe in the rapture, not just somebody who says they do, everybody that knows they believe in the rapture and knows why, believes something that I do not believe, okay? Oh, I've got the, the, my responses that I shared with you throughout that. They're in the notes if you want to look at them later. Um, why do not believe in a rapture? The church does not appear to be a parenthesis in God's plan to save Israel, okay? Everybody that believes in the rapture. So here, here's your big answer to the question from this morning. Do you believe in a rapture, yes or no? My answer is no, The next question is, why? Because I don't believe Israel and the church are supposed to be separated. 
I believe that the New Testament, I believe the Old Testament, along with the New Testament, is very clear that Israel and the church are one and the same. It's the people of God. Okay? So forget about all this other stuff that we've talked about if you need to and really hone in on this component. You can basically dismiss the rapture if you come to a belief that Israel and the church are the same, that it's the same people of God, okay? Not that the church replaces Israel, but that God in the Old Testament was saving largely a group of people from Israel, but not all of Israel, right? A lot of of unbelievers in Israel, but that most of the Christians in the Old Testament came from Israel, and then in the New Testament, it, it distinctly changed where God really began to, what the book of Romans says, graft in Gentiles. Okay, here's the thing. The only reason people believe in a rapture, I gave you the arguments for why they support it, but the reason they believe in it is because they believe Israel and the church are different. Because they're different, they have to reinterpret the end times to make that fit. Okay, I'm convinced that if we brought a five-year-old in here, remember I told you when we introduced Revelation, you'll probably understand Revelation better as a five-year-old than you ever would as an adult because you come to it with too many preconceived beliefs and notions. I'm convinced if a five-year-old read through the New Testament and read all the passages about Jesus coming back, they would never conclude that Jesus is coming back multiple times. I think they would read it and believe that Jesus is coming back, and when Jesus comes back, it's over. It's done with. We bring these beliefs into that reading and think, okay, I think Israel and the church is different, therefore there must be this rapture that allows God to deal with Israel separately. All right? Here's some reasons why I don't believe that they're separate. To believe in the rapture is to believe that God has separate plans and destinies for Israel and the church. And while I admit that passages concerning the end times can be confusing, I believe the Bible is clear about the relationship of Israel and the church. Okay? So, I think the scriptures are really clear about this point, and I want to show that to you as kind of the thing that if you don't remember anything else today, remember this. God has always included others with Israel. The rapture is basically saying that God wants to save Israel, and when God sent Jesus to be the king of Israel, Israel rejected Jesus. And so now God allows the Gentiles to get saved for a time period, and then he'll come back and work with Israel later. So basically the church age what we understand to be this, this glorious bride of Jesus, it's basically a big parenthesis because really what God's interested in is in saving Israel. And the church just happens to get the, the, the opportunity to get saved because Israel rejected Jesus. All right, but here, if we go back into the Old Testament, we can see all along it's always been about Jews and Gentiles getting saved together. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, Promise to Abraham. We studied this uh, extensively. I will bless those who bless you, and him, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We said that's a nod to the gospel and the fact that God would save Gentiles. Genesis chapter twenty-two, verse eighteen. And in you, talking about Abraham, your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Psalm 22. Psalm chapter 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations, okay? This idea of inclusiveness that that God is going to bring others into this people of God. Um, Isaiah 45, 22. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Okay? Again, this idea that others are going to be included. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. 
He says, it is, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah chapter 60. Verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Malachi 1.11, the last one in the Old Testament that we'll look at. These are all Old Testament passages about the salvation of the Lord, including both Jews and Gentiles. Malachi 1.11 For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The New Testament continues this theme of seeing Israel and the church as the true people of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Um, Romans chapter 4, 11, and 12. Romans chapter 11 is, this, is the chapter about the tree and Israel being a tree and Gentiles being grafted into that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Like, I want you to see, like, there's a ton of verses about this. Like, we saw two verses that maybe kind of sort of hinted at the church not being around for a tribulation. There's verse after verse after verse about the Israel uh, nation and the church being one and the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Talking about the church using Israelite Jewish language regarding the temple. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 is another passage. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Galatians 3, 7 is another passage. I mean, just, just verse after verse. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. I mean, just verse after verse. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, Hebrews 12, 1 Peter 2. All these passages talk about Israel and the church coming together as one people of God. In fact... The words for the church in Israel are used interchangeably in the Greek translation of the Bible. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So you have the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and the word used for Israel in the Hebrew Bible is translated ecclesia in the Septuagint. So the, the, the authors went back and said, let's translate this into Greek. And while we're at it, the word we use for the church in the New Testament, let's go ahead and put that on the Old Testament Israelite nation when we write about it. Okay, so it's used interchangeably in the Old Testament. Um, here, here's where you have to, to, to answer some questions if you think, no, they're supposed to be separate. I mean, I think one obvious question is, if the church in Israel is supposed to be separate, why wasn't there more intentional effort to keep them separate during the New Testament? Right? Like, think about it. Paul and Peter and these guys work very hard to try to get the church to see themselves as part of Israel. He tries to get the Jewish people to accept the Gentiles who are getting saved. Here's the kicker is that if you believe in the rapture, people that believe in the rapture believe that Israel spends eternity on this earth and that the church spends eternity in heaven, separated for eternity. And my question is, where is Peter and, and Paul? Right? Like, are, are they Jews? Or are they church members? Yes. Like they're both, right? Like they're of Jewish descent, but they started the churches, right? Like they, they see themselves as part of the bride of Christ. So my big question is, where do Peter and Paul spend eternity if the church is in heaven and Israel's here on this earth? Um, where, 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 where was Rahab when Israel goes into the, the promised land? You don't see... The Jewish people coming and saying, all right, Rahab, you're not a Jew. 
We like having you be a part of our nation, but when it comes to the promises of God, these don't apply to you. So Rahab, you're going to have to live somewhere else because the promised land is just for Jewish people. No, like Rahab's part of the lineage of Jesus, right? Like Rahab gets fully included with no Jewish blood running through her. She gets fully included into the Jewish nation. She is grafted in, in the same way that a believer, a Christian, is grafted into those promises as well. Okay, there's no, there's no intentional effort in the New Testament to keep the two of them separate. Um, if there is a rapture, the church is more of an afterthought due to Israel rejecting Jesus. Here, here's the other crazy thing. People that believe in a rapture believe that when Jesus comes back, that the Old Testament, saint, the Old Testament saints don't come back to life. Let me say that again. They don't believe that Old Testament saints come back to life at the rapture. They believe that happens in the future. Here's what I'm not okay with. I'm just really not okay with getting a glorified body before Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't compute with me. Why would I get a glorified body before these great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament? Right? I, I think they're the same. I think God has grafted us in and we enjoy the same destiny as Israel does. Um, number two. So, so that's the big, the big reason that I don't believe in a rapture is because I don't see the church being separated from Israel. I see them being the same. Number two, the New Testament speaks more about enduring tribulation than avoiding tribulation. The New Testament speaks more about enduring tribulation than avoiding tribulation. For our kids, we believe the Bible tells us to prepare for tribulation. I have a whole bunch of of verses here um, that I know are very familiar to you. Um, So I'm not going to go through them and read them for the sake of time. But here's what I find interesting, is that in Revelation chapter 7, See, I was always taught that the rapture, that there's an urgency. You better respond to Jesus before the rapture because there's no Holy Spirit here on this earth. And so it's going to be really hard to get saved if you can even be saved. Like that's what I was always taught. Rapture, you better get saved before the rapture because when, when Jesus takes us away, there's no Christians to witness. There's no Holy Spirit to help you. It's just going to be awful. But if you read Revelation chapter 7, which we'll get to eventually, verse 9 After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So you basically have all these, these souls, these, these people that have died, that are worshiping from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Verse 13, one of the, one of, then ver, verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these people clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are people that get saved in the tribulation. Like people from everywhere, without the Holy Spirit, without a Christian to witness to them. That's that's really hard to believe. It's really hard to believe that that, that this, and, and these are like the lazy people, right? Because you're supposed to get saved before Jesus comes back and raptures you. And then everybody else is kind of like, man, why did you wait so long? And yet you have this glorious picture of a bunch of lazy people that didn't get saved before the rapture. That doesn't seem to be the picture here. This seems to be like triumphant. These are the people that made it. These are the people that endured. These are the people that really love Jesus. Not ones that were lazy and waited till the second chance opportunity. Number three, the return passages seem to indicate events happening simultaneously rather than at various times. The return passages seem to indicate events happening simultaneously rather than at various times. And that's where we're going to hit pause until next week because we still have a lot to cover and I don't want to confuse you further with um, rushing through it. Um, So we'll pause and we'll pick up there next week.
Um, any questions that you have from what we've talked about today? Because I know for some of you that haven't been here previously, I mean, I just threw a lot of stuff at you, and it may be the first time that you've heard it. So anything I can clarify before we, we wrap up today? Um, that the Bible's here, that, that the book of Revelation's here, that there's ways and opportunities to be exposed to it would be kind of the response. Yep. That apparently somebody did write a document and leave some videos behind, and yeah. Uh, some of them do, yeah. The, the ones that believe the Holy Spirit's not here, then yes. Not, not, let me clarify, not everybody that believes in a rapture believes that the Holy Spirit's not here. Okay. Not everybody that believes in the rapture also believes that the Holy Spirit's not here. There would be some that would believe that the Holy Spirit is still here. Right. Right. So, the, so we understand that the Holy Spirit has to bring about conviction before we can even really um, repent and confess that there has to be a quickening or an awakening that the Holy Spirit generates, that you can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, that there's that conviction that has to be coming, and that conviction comes through the proclamation of God's word. So that's where we would probably differ with some of them on even how salvation works. Yep. Yep. So basically, to have a thousand-year reign and have a rapture, it means that Jesus comes back and sin's not dealt with until a thousand years later. Death isn't dealt with until a thousand years later. Satan's not dealt with until a thousand years later. That Jesus comes in all of his glory, and people still sin, people still die, Satan still does things, and it's not until a thousand-plus years later that that changes. Mm-hmm. 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 Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah, I'm really trying to. Right, right. And and, and why we're trying to approach this up front is because it really shapes the way that we're going to read chapters one through six before we even get there is that we're reading it, I'm going to read it and teach it as though we are here or could be here for these things and not taken away. That's why this is important. It's not just for us to banter and speculate about whether there is or isn't a rapture. It affects the way we read the book of Revelation. We can't study it any further without making a decision. Do we believe that we're here for it or not here for it? And so I'm saying we are, and I want you to have some semblance of an understanding as to why I say we are. So again, if you don't hear anything else from today, the reason that I believe we're here for all that happens in Revelation is because I believe Israel and the church are the one people of God. That's where you can focus your studies right now. If you're just like, I want to think for myself. I don't want to just believe this because Adam tells me to. And I don't want you to believe it because I'm telling you to. Okay? And I think, I'm afraid that's where we are right now. I told you in our discussion groups, I don't want it to be that everybody in this church says, I don't believe in a rapture. And then your coworkers say, why? And you say, I don't know. Like, that's just what I've been taught. I don't want to flip the page because a lot of us grew up saying, I believe in a rapture. And when, when I asked you, you said, I don't know, that's what I've been taught, but I don't remember what I've been taught really about it. Most people that we're going to encounter believe in a rapture. I mean, I look like I carry the flu when I'm talking to people at Trinity and they find out I don't believe in a rapture. Like, they look at me like, like I'm just like messed up. I want you to know if you don't believe in a rapture, why you don't and why you read the book of Revelation the way that we're going to be reading it.
And since we're pausing right here, I'm going to go back, collect things that we didn't hit that I wanted to hit that we had to skip over and package that again next week into part two of this. So some of the things that we skipped over today for the sake of time, we'll come back to next week. A lot of, yeah, a lot of people, some people would be able to, like your uncle that wrote a commentary, I guess, grandfather. <laughs> your grandfather could probably tell you why he believes that, but, um, yeah. No, I believe that basically it's like meeting him in the parking lot. When Jesus comes back, uh, b- believers that are dead are going to be raised to life and are going to meet him in the air. We that are here that are believers will meet him in the air and basically will immediately come back to earth. Just like if we went out in the parking lot and came right into the church service. It's basically, instead of us kind of like, hey, I'm here, like I'm part of your group, that basically Jesus says, come here, all my people, now let's go do this together kind of thing immediately. Yeah. Yeah, so Sison saying the context in how it would have been originally understood is that when warring kings and armies would come back, you would go meet them and then usher them back into Um, that place, declaring victory. So essentially, it's us getting to go be with Jesus as he comes to this earth to proclaim victory so that we're not kind of hoping and waiting to get to see him kind of thing. Okay? All right, so um, I'll, again, go back, figure out where I was confusing and try to be more um, or less confusing next week. We'll pick up. There's still a lot of things that need to be discussed here. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I'm good with that. I'm pronouncing victory right now, too, though, (laughs) even before then. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. Right. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you for your attention today. I'm sorry that it's kind of, a again, a different style of sermon, but I think for us to really mine the depths of Revelation, we have to do some some pre-work so that we can really get in there and get dirty with it and, and know what we're doing um, when we get in there. So, all right, let's pray together. Um, I'm going to pick up here next week. Lord, we, we thank you for minds and um, the ability to comprehend and understand um, once we put forth effort um, to kind of see and, and grasp some of the deep things that you've communicated in your word. God, I'm thankful that you haven't tried to dumb down everything in, in your scriptures, that as a, as a God with infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom, we would certainly expect that your book would at times be difficult for us as finite people to understand. God, I'm praying that, that what won't be lost in the midst of all this discussion is that you are coming back for your people. Um, God, I don't want us to get caught up in some of the Um, the minute details of of trying to mesh some of this stuff out. But God, I do want all of us to see how important it is for us to give attention to this and not simply throw our hands up and say, it's too confusing. I'm not going to put forth the effort to understand this. God, I want us in ways that we've never understood before to be able to, to wrap our minds around what is going to happen in the future, that you are coming back victoriously. So God, I pray that, that we wouldn't grow frustrated if this is complicated and if we're having a hard time understanding this. God, I pray that it would motivate us to listen well and to rehash notes when we leave. Um, God, I want us to all be able to comprehend this in such a way that we can teach others and disciple others about the hope of your return. God, give me wisdom to know how to, to clarify when it's confusing. God, help me to know how to package this in such a way that all can receive and hear it. 
And God, I pray that it would create the urgency that it should within us, um, that our unbelieving friends, that our lost loved ones will not get a second chance when Jesus returns. God, we thank you for grafting us into Israel. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of your people. We praise you and thank you for our salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.